Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. on a Christian response. And today we're going to explore a Christian response to death and loss. It comes in all of our lives if we live long enough that we will experience how death impacts us, whether it's a member of our family, our friends, our church, our community, our schools, our jobs, all of those realms where we enter in and out, we discover that death creates an intense loss, not only in us, but in our lives and in the lives of others that we also love and care about. And so it's important for us to consider how we might respond. And if you've already experienced death and loss, then perhaps this will be a time to add to your ability to respond rather than just react. So let's explore a little bit more about what it means to respond versus react. Respond shares its origin with responsible. So a response is considerate and deliberate. It is a statement about intentionality. It is engineered to produce a positive outcome versus reaction. Reaction means to meet one action with another. And sometimes that might just be gently colliding or exploding as you collide with one another. And so reaction is actually an opportunity to have any number of outcomes, both positive and negative. And as Christians, we are called more to the former than the latter. We are called to be those who respond. That's why so often in Scripture it says to be still, to know, to think, and to pray. We're encouraged to take a moment. I read a quote this morning from a rock star that I had heard growing up who was known for his anger. He was actually known for kind of exploding and unleashing his negative emotions, not just in his music, but in his life. And as he reflects, because now we're older, and as he reflects on that, he said, you know, a lot of times I realize that I reacted to something when I should have just taken a breath, should have paused for a moment. And so for us, it's important to have an idea of how we might pause or what we might want to grasp onto because when you're talking about death and loss, it is very visceral, it is very emotional. And your entire being, from your head to your heart to your spirit, even your body can react to that devastating loss. And if we pick up on our story here, Isaac has experienced a devastating loss. He is the only child of Abraham and Sarah. And Isaac isn't just an only child. He is a miracle baby. He was physically impossible to have. That's what's so amazing about Isaac's story. So you have to think about the circumstances under which he was born. His father, who had followed God's lead to leave his people in the place where he grew up and go into a country and a people that were not his, and had continually gone through all kinds of tribulations and struggles, some of which he brought forth from his sin, but I will commend Genesis to you. And so you get to the point where 
Sarah was trying to do what was expected of her in the family, what was expected to her, of her by her culture. She was expected to get married, which she did, and bear children, but not just any children, a male heir for Abraham. And despite all of her desire and longing and attempts, she was never able to do this. And then the day came for Sarah when she knew that she never would. It had ceased to be with her in the way of women. And as happens to us, her body had finally said to her, we are closed for business. There will no longer be a child for you. And you have to wonder about the loss that she was feeling, the loss of potential, the loss of expectation, the loss of triumph. Because she wanted to give Abraham a child. But then God did something that only God could do. God ensured that she would, in fact, bear a child. And that is the miracle. She did something that medical science still hasn't figured out how to do in 2022. She was able to bear a child for Abraham at 90. Some of us are like, I don't know if that's a miracle or if that's a problem. But for Sarah, it was everything. It was so exciting. This was it. This is what she had always wanted. And here he was, a wonderful boy that they named Isaac. And so Isaac grew up not just the apple of his mother's eye. He grew up as this living, breathing proof of God's power. He was the fulfillment of hopes and dreams and promises and expectations. And even though she was in her 90s, when he was a child, she was able to say, yes, because of God, I have finally been able to do what everybody in our families and in our culture and our society thought that I should do. It was a different understanding of the role of people in society, but she did it. And she loved him and she cared for him and he got almost all of her attention, I'm sure. And so she has died at this point in the text. And Abraham has mourned her by purchasing a field with a cave where he could inter her body and know that she had a final resting place. But we don't really get much about how Isaac was mourning outwardly, even as he was grieving inside. We don't get a lot about that. But our story picks up after a lot of things have already happened. And what happened is that after Sarah died, Abraham realized that because of their age, that Sarah and Abraham had not been able to do something that would have been done when they were younger and more capable of doing it, and that is to secure a wife for their child. Because Isaac would need a wife, he would need to start his own family, he would need to have his own children to inherit all of the blessing that God had given this family, and to continue the covenant that Abraham had entered into. And so Abraham starts to realize that time is fleeting, and so he says to one of his trusted servants, I need you to go back to my people, not to the foreigners here, not to the Canaanites. Go back to my people and find a suitable wife for Isaac. No pressure. But the servant leaves. And the servant tries to prepare himself, takes multiple camels, takes other servants with him, takes lots of treasures and gifts in order to cajole whoever he finds their family into letting her come back with him. And he ends up arriving in a place where Abraham's people might be from. And he does what everybody does in the Bible when you're looking for a single lady. You go to a well. And he goes to the well and he starts to 
pray to God. And he prays to the God of his master. And he says, Lord, I need your help. I need you to help me find who it is that you want for your servant, Abraham's son, Isaac. So here is what we'll do, Lord. I will ask the young woman when she comes if she will get me some water as she is out here fetching water. And if she is the one that you want for Isaac, may she respond with, I will also water your camels. If you've never had the opportunity to see a camel drinking or appreciate the vast amount of water that those animals can consume, then let me tell you, he had multiple camels. This went from, you know, I'm going to go out and get a little exercise while getting water for my family's household to I am now in the midst of an Ironman marathon. The amount of work that she was going to have to do to constantly get the water out of the well and go back and forth to water not only him, but all of his camels. And so she arrives there, Rebecca does, and the scriptures tell us that she was a very good-looking young woman. And so the servant says, let me try her. And he says, you know, may, may I have a drink of water? Will you get me a drink of water? And of course she goes, yes, and I will water your camels. And the servant's like, yes, thank you, God. And so they convince her family to let her come back, telling who Abraham is and Isaac and what his errand is. And they come back, and that's where our text picks up for today. They are almost back to the familial compound where Abraham and all of his servants and his wealth are amassed. And Isaac is there, and Isaac is out. guess he's got nothing else to do. The work for the day is done, evening is setting in, and he's walking in the fields. And Rebecca spots him, and she says to the servant, is this Isaac? And the servant says, yes. And then the servant is able to tell Isaac all that had happened, all of the story, which is a great story. You should really read Genesis. <laughs> it's a great story. And Rebecca prepares herself for this future that she has entered into. Puts on her veil, gets herself ready. And then our story tells us something pretty remarkable. It says in verse 67, Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. He had been living in his mother's tent. Often in this culture, uh, even though they were married, men and women had separate spaces. Right? This is before we formally invented the man cave. They had their own man tent. And she had a woman's tent. And so Isaac, as he is grieving his mother, seems to have moved into her tent. Or maybe he never left. But he's there. And if you've ever had someone that you love die, and maybe after the funeral, the memorial service, the, the service of death and resurrection in a church, maybe afterwards you got to go back to their home and the sights and the smells and the sounds, the familiarity of the space and the furniture, it's a... It's a blessing and a burden. It rushes back on you, and, it, and you remember the things that you experienced in this space and the person who lived there and the power of those sensory remembrances. But at the same time, it hurts because their presence is not there in the same way. It's not that they're just going to come out of the bedroom or come out of the kitchen. Instead, it's a reckoning that they are gone in a different way. And so Isaac has been living in this tent, and then he takes Rebecca, and he marries her. He starts a brand new relationship with her. 
And maybe what God is encouraging us to do is recognize that God is not asking you to replace the one who has died. That's not what God is saying. God didn't send Rebecca to be a new mother to Isaac. God didn't empower the servant to recognize Rebecca so that she could be a surrogate mother, an honorary, adoptive mother, none of that. God knew that Isaac had a hole in his being where his mother was. And God sent Rebecca to be a new relationship. And Isaac seems to recognize that. He's not trying to replace his mother. Instead, he's trying to say, I will have a new relationship and I will bring into this relationship all the blessings that my mother gave to me, the things that she taught me, the experiences that we had. I will share that now with Rebecca. And maybe, just maybe, the way that I love and treat her will encourage her to love me so that the hole in my life where a powerful and important relationship once was will begin to feel a little smaller. And I will begin to feel like I have hope. And so a response to death in Christianity means recognizing that none of us are here to replace the one that is gone. None of us can do that. You'll notice that nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus say to his apostles, you are to replace me when I ascend. That is not the message. Instead, Jesus is saying, I am now sending you to shepherd the flock. I am sending you all out together to bless in my name and to share the things that I have taught you. Testify to the relationship that we have had and bless other people with that gift. And so God is not asking you to replace the people that have gone. Not at all. Not asking you to run right out and get a new mother or run right out and get a new spouse. That's not at all what God is saying. Instead, God reminds us in the same words of Jesus Christ, God knows every hair on your head. God knows every person you have loved. God knows all the ways in which they filled you with joy and they made this life better, worth living, a blessing. God knows that. And God is not asking us to adopt a theology, a knowledge of God that is about replacement. In Christianity, we do not believe in reincarnation. It's an ancient understanding that came down through Hinduism and many of the derivatives and reforms, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, all of which find their roots in Hinduism. But Christianity does not believe in that. Christianity does not believe that God is going to take the one who has died and plug them back in here and then see if maybe they can find each other in a new life. God knows that that would actually detract from the gift of relationship here and now. And so God says, when your body ceases, when this life ends, I will take all the essence of your beloved and I will hold them for you. I will hold them in trust. And I will not try to tell you that you can find a secondary or a lesser version of that person. Instead, I am promising you repeatedly throughout the scriptures that I will hold them in trust and one day I will restore them to you. It's one of those moments where you recognize that when the Apostle Paul and even Jesus hints at the fact that on the day of resurrection, we will receive new bodies, new spiritual bodies that are impervious to sickness and death and sin. And you realize, good thing, 
Because if you suddenly had all those that you had lost restored to you, your heart would rupture with joy. These hearts could not survive that kind of reunion. And the longer we live, the greater the number that we want to be reunited with is. This past week, I had someone say to me, I wish you could have met my grandmother. I think that you two would have really liked each other. And my response was, I can't wait to meet her. And they said, but she's dead. And I said, I know. But we believe in the resurrection, and so one day I will meet her. And when we get into that kingdom to come, which Christ has promised he is already preparing for us, then I look forward to meeting her. And not just meeting her, but getting to know her and hearing the stories. Because we're going to have a lot of time on our hands. Eternity. And so all of those people that I have received glimpses or maybe quotes from because they're embodied in the people that I know and love and serve here, I know that one day I will actually meet the source who then can introduce me to their source and to their source. And so the kingdom becomes this place where we get to see how legacy is lived out. One of the things that happens in a Christian service of death and resurrection is that there's generally a eulogy, maybe a homily of hope, an opportunity to offer personal remembrances. And as that happens, and I have officiated and given many of those in my time in ministry, I spend a lot of time talking about legacy. Because I think if you've ever lost somebody that you have loved that much, you worry that the world will forget them. You worry that one day you might forget them. Or what if when you go, nobody ever remembers their name? We have those fears. And so legacy becomes an opportunity to recognize that the things that we have gained from those that we have gathered together to mourn in the passing can be embodied in us and can be gifts that will be given to others. They can be a place where through the privilege of relationship, we can tell the story, not always using words, but there are times where they're invited. I have spent more time talking about my son's grandmother and great-grandmother because of the cooking that they showed me how to do. And somebody would say, I really like your pasta sauce. If they really want to make me happy, they go, this is the best pasta sauce I've ever had. To which I would respond, Nona taught me how to make that. And they go, well, who's Nona? Come and sit down at the table. And while you eat this sauce, I will tell you about Nona. I will tell you who she is. So the gifts that she gave me, even the skills, those skills I use to bless other people, and it becomes an opportunity to ensure that her legacy is not forgotten. And relationship allows us to do that. It's a beautiful conduit. Now, maybe the world has different expectations. Maybe the world expects us to, you know, go through this replacement theory. God does not. God was not expecting Isaac to replace Sarah. No one ever would. No one ever would. But in the hole that was in his being, in his heart, in his life, God said, here's a new relationship. And can you imagine that the first time he took her into that tent, and he said, this is, this is where my mother lived. And these things were my mother's. 
let me tell you the story that my mother used to tell me about how I was born, how I came to be. And Rebecca, because our scriptures tell us that she was a good and faithful spouse to Isaac, probably said, I would love to know about your mother. I would love to. And the scripture in brief but profound nuance and one of the few places in 66 books tells us that he loved her. And so he was comforted after his mother's death. The new relationship, the newness, was a way in which he could find comfort. Not to replace, not to forget, but to be comforted. Because Isaac existed in a time before people knew of resurrection in Jesus Christ. But God knew Isaac, knew Sarah, and knew that Isaac could not continue to exist like this. And because he was willing to have a new relationship, because he was willing to bring all the gifts that his mother had given to him into this new and yet different relationship, the world has been blessed. Isaac does, in fact, not only inherit all of Abraham's earthly wealth and blessing, but also continues the covenant. And his family has a legacy. In their lineage is the promise that we don't have to worry about earning our salvation. We don't have to have the fear that we can't do enough so that God would love us and forgive us. For his is the family that sets the standard of righteousness by faith alone. But if Isaac had withered away into nothing, if he hadn't had a relationship that could help him find strength and hope and learn not just to survive but to thrive once more, that promise might have died right there. So as Christians, we are given the opportunity to try to figure out where are we? Sometimes we are those that are mourning. We are those that have this intense grief at loss, and we are hoping that at the very least within the body of Christ, we can find relationships that will help us to bless and be blessed. Perhaps to find a new purpose in how we love but not to make us forget the ones that we have loved. But we are also the people who are part of a community, a living, breathing body of Christ, who recognize that sometimes our job is to be a relationship for others, to listen to their stories, to hear how it is with their spirit and their heart, to invite them to receive the blessings that we have inherited through our relationships, but also to be a place where they can share their blessings and the things that they have learned and experienced from the ones that they mourn. And our job is to determine the next time there is death and profound loss, how will we respond? Because if we don't think about it now, we will react. And on September 11th, we gathered here and talked about the difference between how people mourn. We talked about that the grief may be the same profound, heartbreaking grief within, but people cope differently with that grief. And external mourning looks very different. But within the body of Christ, 
There is space for that. There is a place for people to be diverse and different. And yet have our union in God Almighty. And so may we find that we have the opportunity to be both Isaac and Rebecca. We are those who will lose, profoundly so, the longer that we are alive. And we will have those days where we feel like Isaac, wandering hopelessly through the fields at twilight. But because of God's grace and goodness, we will also be given opportunities to be Rebecca, to be a new day, to be a new relationship, a new blessing. And not to supplant the one who came before us, but to compliment them and to bring hope. Reaction is a collision. A response is a holy union. And we are called to be holy vessels of God. So no matter what the future holds, whether before long you are Isaac or before long you are Rebecca, may you find courage and conviction in being a relationship, not a solution, not the one who says to someone, you need to get over that. It's been too long. But instead, one who creates space so that the fears that we all go through will have a safe place to be expressed, to be worked through, and to ultimately be transformed into blessings. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.